Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, welcome to the 372nd episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Josh Hansborough and Kenny Beaumont. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Warren Kaplan. And today we are catching up. We're talking about... Life as a filmmaker, is it sustainable? Can a human being working in film make enough money to, you know, have a family, have a house, have a car, be happy, go on vacations, take weekends off? Or is it just an endless struggle until you die or quit? So, Matt, we are going to talk about all this stuff. And by the way, our two patrons that we mentioned today, Josh and Kenny, Thank you so much. We appreciate you guys very much. Kenny, you emailed us. I'm going to email you back. It's on my to-do list. You signed up at the $15 level, which is our old hat price level. <laughs> but it's, it's truly like a ghost. Like, yeah, we keep trying to change Patreon and it keeps bringing it back up. I feel like an old man. I feel like a person who like <laughs> signs their Facebook posts or something. Do you know what I mean? Like I don't understand how it keeps popping back up because we've had this problem multiple times. And together, you have we've watched me delete it, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and somehow it's back on. Yeah. Also, we're out of hats, but I might be able to find two of them. I'm going to send them to Josh and Kenny, and we're going to be done with this. <laughs> Josh and Kenny, do us a favor: don't cancel after the fifteen dollars is charged, because then we will have lost money. No, you can cancel. Come on, we're fine. <sighs> yeah, we're fine. I know it's just kind of the principle. I guess it's our fault. So anyway, it, it is. It's it's our fault. It's have you ever had this happen when you go on Amazon and you order something and you get like you accidentally get a six pack of it? It's happened to me multiple times and it's quite amazing. I I've ordered like uh, diapers that are the wrong size for my baby, but like always, fortunately, ones that are a size up. So they're just sitting. I just am stuck with a box of diapers until she grows into them. No, that's a very, very different, different deal. Different I'm deal. saying sometimes people like because you can get bundles. Anyhow, I feel like when that happens to me, it's not like I'm going to send five of them back. And so yeah. when it happens to Kenny and Josh that they yeah. accidentally use the loophole um, on a poor, poor podcast's Patreon page. And, yeah. Um, just okay. pay, it, pay it forward, guys. That's right. If you're interested in this level of quality podcasting. <laughs> Go to patreon.com slash just shoot a pod and throw us a buck or two to keep Noah editing the show. I appreciate him so much. And he cleans up all of our sloppy, bad podcasting. So thanks, Noah. And we appreciate you. We don't always interact with everyone that much, but it's it like really means a lot for us. And we love saying your name at the beginning of the show. It does make me happy. That's true. Yeah. So Josh Hansbro, Google Josh Hansbro director, Google Kenny Ken- Beaumont Ken- director. Kenny Beaumont. Yeah. And uh, go, you know, hire these guys to direct your next Marvel movie. Please. It's the least you can do. While they're still making them, we're going to run out of them eventually. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you 
everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June too is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Speaking of, do you think you, if you directed one Marvel movie uh-huh. and never directed anything else again, you would make enough money to like live your, the rest of your life? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, in Los Angeles, no. If I moved to a place where it cost less afterwards, if you're always like, hey, okay, I, I made like a couple million bucks and then I moved to somewhere cheaper and just like paid for my house outright and like groceries were cheaper and you could invest relatively well, you may, you could do it. You could pull it off for sure. Do you think you make a couple million dollars if you're not like a James Gunn or not, you know, if you're a yeah, non-famous I think, I think DGA minimums director. keep, keep it still pretty, pretty high. Just, yeah, I think so. I think so. Okay. Well, I'm, we'll I'm get wonder. more into yeah. how much money directors make in a few minutes. But before that, I've been dying to know, Matt, Mm -hmm. what have you been working on lately? Well, I've got a fun anecdote for you that I think is going to blow your mind a little bit. Uh, Are you aware that there's a writer's strike? The writers of of the Writers Guild of America. Boy, it it truly is emotional for listeners who haven't been listening for a long, long time. Orn and I kind of both started during the last writer's strike 15 years ago, give or take. Yeah, I mean, 2007, 2008. Yeah, yeah like, like that's kind of like the the beginning of our careers. I made a lot of friends through the strike, actually. I was part of an organization called Strike TV. We were releasing all sorts of web series, which kind of launched my career because um, writers were trying to take back uh, the the means of, of producing and distributing their, their media. And we thought web series were going to be this incredible indie rock DIY form of TV, which is maybe sort of come true now, but at the time we, you know, uh, it was uh, Joss Whedon's uh, uh, Dr. Horrible Sing Along blog, and Mindy Kaling had a show on Strike TV. Yeah, you know, it was so fun. It was so fun. What's her name? Lisa Kudrow was probably Mm -hmm. doing Zoom therapy or something. Mm -hmm. Web therapy, it was called, sure. Yeah, there were a lot of people doing it. Anyway, um, so, uh, so it is emotional, actually. I, all of those old friends are like posting videos from back in the day and stuff. And I drive yeah. by. Did you my see my video? Work. Did we talk about this already? No. Did people resurface it? Yeah. And it's so the video, I shot a strike video in 2007. I didn't talk to you about this. Mm-mm, no. So it's the, the story, basically, our, uh, this writer I, we knew, Alan Loeb, who'd written like Things We Lost in the Fire and all these famous movies wrote this writer's strike video and he just sent it to uh, my friend Avi and Seth and they're like, Hey, let's make this. So it, the story is basically this guy is like writing, using final draft, you know, 
in a coffee mm-hmm. shop during the strike and these two like strike cops come in and they basically beat him up and he's like, no, I'm just a producer. And they're like, you're writing. And they find Brad's in his pocket, which like mm-hmm. Had, mm-hmm. has no the, relevance today. You know? At the time you would, you would print your screenplay and then bind it with Brad's. Yeah. yeah. They're like the metal things that go into the holes yeah. that you punch out. So that's how they, they bust them. And you know, they leave the the coffee shop and then everyone brings out their like secret screenplays and you know, their pitches and everyone's like secretly writing uh, and when we made it, it, you know, I think it got like 16,000 views or something, which mm-hmm. sounds like nothing. And even in 2008, uh, it was kind of not that much. However, and we talk about this all the time, the 16,000 people that care about this video all work in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So we got like manager meetings, agent meetings. We got repped off of that video. Uh, and it was just like being in the right time in the right place because all of a sudden people, are caring about paying attention to web yeah, video. and, they're, and yeah. they're not doing anything else today i was wondering like could you re could you do that again could you make like an amazing strike video and get noticed by hollywood but it, it, you know it's just the the world of content creation is yeah. so different now that there's thousands of strike videos already you know a couple of weeks sure. into the strike yeah, yeah because every literally everyone is making strike videos right yeah, like there's literally not... like two or three strike podcasts already well and also i mean like Instagram didn't exist. Reels didn't exist. Like social video wasn't really a thing. So right. like, you know, every single person I know uh, who's a writer is like on a picket line taking adorable selfies, you know, mm-hmm. like interviewing with, people, interview, interviewing people, posting pithy comments on the, you know, the great captions on everyone's signs and stuff. You know, it's it's like a whole thing. So like the, the need to you know, raise, uh, the exposure of, of the strike is, is different now, right? Like the reason people were sharing a funny video about the strike is because there was just far less content that was entertaining or raised awareness. Right. Yeah. Like literally there's so many strike videos right now that if I type WGA strike video, O Kaplan into YouTube, <laughs> my video doesn't even show up on the first page. <laughs> That's uh, funny. 62,000 views. Not bad. Not, not bad, bad. Not bad. Well, <laughs> so the, the reason I bring it up is because, like we said, we're, we're two weeks into the strike now. This is the second week. I imagine there are a lot of people listening right now who are like, well, I'm not in the WGA. I don't really care that much. Or rather, like, this doesn't affect me directly. So I wanted to share an anecdote. My wife is working on her next feature. And for a few weeks, we'd been planning on... um a table read and a producer friend of ours reached out and was like, Hey, I might be feeling paranoid, but like, this isn't scabby behavior. Is it to have a table read, to have a table read and to have producers present. And honestly, it hadn't even dawned on me. Like I said, from strike TV days, we were writing and shooting and distributing our stuff all the time, but it wasn't with, it was not for YouTube or for Vimeo or wherever. And so I think it was a, a, it's a totally different deal. The only way that this would be scabby behavior, in my opinion, and I know you're not asking it, but is if said producer is like a development exec at mm-hmm. Amazon or Netflix, uh, so, because uh, it, there's the struck companies, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they're the However, ones that were icing out. Right. I, I understand that that I, that's what I had thought initially as well. And I was like, let me dig in a little bit more. The WGA has a bunch of great uh, FAQs and things like that. We ended up like really spelling things out and wrote to the WGA to ask specifically. Uh, you would. You would. Yeah, because... Just FYI, uh, listeners. And, and as a Matt reminder... Is like doing something in his yeah. own private home and he emails giant organizations to make very, sure they're okay with it. Very pro-union. Um, producers, any producer is deemed a representative of the struck companies. Whether you're paid by Warner Brothers or Netflix or something or not, you are, quote unquote, a representative of a, of a struck company. And therefore, they do, they're kind of lumped in with those groups, right? And uh, you might say, well, oh, okay, well, I'm a writer who's uh, not WGA, so it doesn't matter. But you are classified technically as pre-WGA. So if you right, but what if, what if be... Larry David, who produces his own show and also writes it, came to your house to listen to the table read? Is that... I, it, it's a little bit of a gray area, but like... Even though he only produces his own stuff. You know? There's the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. 
if Larry David isn't is engaging strictly as a producer or as a writer and isn't intending to produce your your film in any way, I think you're probably in the clear. But if you're a producer, even though you're not, you know, hired by you're not in a development executive at Amazon, but the intention is to produce the film and then distribute it. Technically, that is scabby. Like, it, it, I, we, it's we not wrote because asked. it doesn't ask. It doesn't affect the terms of this. Like a strike. The idea is that but you we are, are en- engaging in development with the intent to distribute the film eventually. Yeah. No, but what if you self-distribute? Then you you've you have deemed this not worthy for nothing or mm-hmm. not permissible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, crazy. That's why I brought it up to you because I I figured you would. And I, like I said, my at first I was like, this seems a little extreme. And then uh, I thought about it a little bit more. And so, listen, like I think everyone has to make their own decision about uh, how strict they are about these rules and the ways that they want to play the game. The game. So the difference is, is like we're still having the the um the table, the table read. read but producers aren't present because we specified like writers groups pe- people are still right writers are still wg writers are still writing specs they're still developing their they're developing their own work they're just not engaging with conversations with people who are going to buy their work or distribute their work or develop like make offers on their work yet yeah. that's the thing that's on pause and so it does sound a little crazy i get it like um, literally if you canceled netflix and peacock and hulu that would mm-hmm. have a bigger effect uh, to help writers than not inviting a friend that produced some short film once you know sure i think the difference between a friend who has produced and a friend who's going to produce your movie is maybe a bigger delineation but i'm curious to hear what people think um i brought it up more as a a topic of conversation, a thing for people to think about and for them to kind of scrutinize their own thoughts and practices. It, for us, it's nice and simple because it's like, okay, well, there's the the point of it is a writing exercise. It's not like, right. it's not an exhibition for potential investors or producers or things like that. So it's easy to just be like, okay, you know, we'll just keep the, the garden separate and, um, you know, do right. it as a writing exercise. So no, no harm, no foul there. But, uh, but I thought it was interesting. Yeah, yeah it, it is interesting. I'm going to similarly, not, not some very different, but kind of sketchy position also, because I have this scripted podcast. Mm. Oh, with a, right. And it's with a production company that is not part of the MPTP yeah. there. Uh, the production company is mainly known for books and novels. Mm hmm. This podcast are they're never been remotely close to being covered by WGA in any way. So it's not even like it's a pre WGA pre, like some W some podcasts are WGA that they WGA does not cover podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the company that we are we wrote mm-hmm. it for, which by the way we we haven't written since the strike started, mm-hmm. um, but we did get some notes a few days mm-hmm. ago mm-hmm. Uh, via email, and the question is like, do we? address them <laughs> or do mm-hmm. we not? Because the owner of said podcast company is mm-hmm. one of the new major studios. And I think it's important to delineate because I too am working on a podcast, but mine is nonfiction um, and is not covered by nonfiction podcasts aren't covered by the WJ and WGA at all, you know? Right. Um, like this show is not covered in, you know, there's a lot, but right. But yours is there, is, but is like a history channel nonfiction show covered mm-hmm. by the WGA? No, no. Just in the same way that like reality TV isn't covered by the WGA. Like I said, I drive by all these picketers. I recognized people like friends of mine. I was like, this feels terrible. I need to like just quadruple check that I'm not. Do you think doing- some of that guilt or comes from not going to the picket like do you feel at all that us not really being wga members even though we've you know worked on many projects and pitched things that if they went would be wga yeah 100 percent. we're still i think we are the best example of pre wga writers as 
as there can be, right? Like we're one job away from being WGA, which is true for everybody, but like we're established people who are working, but literally I drive by them to go to work. Right. So like I was like, I gotta just be sure because this is too heavy and too important and too antithetical to my beliefs and values to not be just rock solid Sharon. Yeah. Um, um, and so I, I read an article about how podcasts, fiction podcasts are under the jurisdiction of the WGA, but they were like, it's literally going to affect 12 people right now. But those 12 people technically have to strike. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I would uh, pencils down, bro. Oh man. Part of it would be kind of helpful for me because I'm like a little <laughs> on the busy side, but also, you know, we have a show and we got notes and the notes were like really yeah, good man. and everyone's excited yeah. and they're like, we're going to win this one. Yeah. Sh- sharpen that pencil and put it to use on writing a pithy uh, protest sign. Well, now I don't feel as bad for not calling my co-writer back today. <laughs> I mean, truly pencils down, you know. Okay. Okay, Matt. Um I had coffee with our uh, friend and listener, Tony Gapastioni. He's also been a guest recently mm-hmm. um, today. And he told me, he's like, I'm, I'm a SAG member. So I thought I'd go support some, fr- you know, the WGA and go pick it. And he got to meet like the whole cast of Abbott Elementary. <laughs> and um, He said, I brought up Larry David randomly because uh-huh. he, he had mentioned him. He said, Larry David brought a Yeasty Boys Yeasty bagel. Yeasty Boys truck to Warner. I yeah. Know. And everyone had unlimited free bagels. And I'm like, is it cool if I just go? For the food trucks? Well, so like I said, I work right there. Some coworkers went on a walk and texted me photos. And I was like, oh, dang. <laughs> yeah. I love Yeasty Boys. I, but, I mean, you have boys. to you have to probably pick it for at least like 20 yeah. minutes to get a Yeah, you can't just me. drive by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't understand at the time. I was like, get me one. And they were like, um. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, you know, the takeaway for us is it's okay to develop your own stuff. Just don't try to sell it, which is when the producer parts are, are um, complicated. Hit us up with your own questions and strike stories and maybe we can try and get some answers. You can always email the WGA. It'll take them a couple days because they're pretty busy, but it's worth it if you're feeling like a little weird. You want to be in solidarity. I, I yeah, recommend if, it. It made me feel better for sure. Just like asking them specifically, you know? Yeah. If you do email them, spell check, grammar check, they're, they're real freaking picky about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. That yeah. stuff. Yeah, if, you, if, you, if you have um, hanging claws, you're just yeah. like, you look like a jerk. Well, to, to take it serious for a second, like one of the things that they're fighting for and kind of our main topic of the show today is a lot of WGA members feel like this was a sustainable career where you could be a middle class writer, you could get on a TV network show, you'd book one job a year, you're writing for eight mm-hmm. months, however long it is, six months, 22 episodes, you get a couple episodes, you get residuals, you make money, you know, your stuff airs on TV, it maybe gets syndicated around the world, they're on cable channels, and you can make a living uh, this way. But nowadays, with streaming and, you know, eight episode mm-hmm. seasons, six episode Mini seasons, rooms, all that stuff, yeah. Mike White writing the entire series, you know, uh, don't bring that up. That's an edge season case. himself. That's not the problem. <laughs> no, I, it's not the problem, but it, it's an edge case that the studios use as an example. Sure, like, hey, that's right. True. Like, yeah, and yeah. it's there's a lot of those, right? Like, um, there's like four. I know that's what Adam Conover said, but I think there's, there's more many, than four. There's not that many people. Doing I'll, that. I'll find you a list, but um, like Noah Fowley, you know, who did like Fargo, like he wrote mm-hmm. all those seasons on his own. There, there's a lot of people that do it, but anyhow, it doesn't matter because the whole point is that. It, it it begs the question, made me think a lot about like as a filmmaker and directing and, you know, the beginning mm-hmm. of this year is very slow and we talked about this a million times and, you know, we've all switched, you know, you've shifted uh, from freelance to full-time to freelance to full-time, like based on the ebbs and flows of the industry. And we're both, you know, of a certain age where we want to have a house and cars mm-hmm. and kids and families and, and maybe God forbid, like take a weekend off sure. and travel yeah. I mean, I, I will say this. I think our, also speak for myself, remembering what the strike was like 15 years ago and knowing that it was probably coming put me on high alert in a way that I don't know. This year, you're, you're this time put you on high alert? Because 15 yeah. years ago, I was like literally yeah, living with ago, a bunch of roommates and just hanging out all day long. Yeah, yeah. I literally, like I had a, a good friend who, lived on Trader Jones beans out of a can. (laughs) 
Yeah, which now it you can get fine. them out of a bag. Yeah, there's no, yeah, a little harder to store, but whatever. And now that that same person has two kids and lives in the valley and has a full time job. Um, yeah, no, I was like, oh, I can see this coming. That's why I went and found something. Right, found something reliable, like long term. And both right, of yeah. us are married to actors too, so we're all yeah, we're all in the same boat yeah. where. This year was the first time I kind of realized the economy has such an impact on me personally because I thought, you know, commercials are never going away. Hollywood's never going away. Our America's number one export is entertainment. We're safe forever, you know, but I think there's this thing that happened over the last few years. Obviously, COVID, people are watching a lot of TV, Netflix, all the streamers were just trying to get mm-hmm. as many subscribers as possible. They, the joke was like two years ago that you just, you know, Netflix just picks up the phone, you call them and they're like, hello, what may yeah, we green light for you? Yeah. Um, and now all of a sudden the shift is like, hey, we have to make money. We can't just keep burning things. And there's way too many people to pay, right? There's like so many new writers, directors, filmmakers, it's like content creation and we're competing with TikTok and all this stuff. Like I loathe Tucker Carlson. (laughs) I'll just say that. But you know, he was getting like 3 million views a night on Fox news and he posted a video on Twitter that already got like, you know, 50 million views when I watched it like yesterday. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's like, you know, when Fox news is spending millions of dollars on their network, you know, on their news network or Tucker Carlson spending like a couple thousand dollars to put a video on YouTube like, and he gets a way better return. It's just, the question is, can you spend hundreds of millions of dollars on these TV shows and pay all these people all this money when there's all these other places people are getting content from that are so much cheaper to produce? Uh, and so as us, we're filmmakers, we're writers, we're directors, we're producers. As we get older, our requirements for how much money we make are higher, sure. right? We, yeah. You assume that yeah. you're going to get paid more when you're, 35 than when you're 25 for if you've been doing the same job for a number of years and at that point you have to pay for your kids schools and daycare Mm -hmm. and gymnastics and all the other things mortgages and so it just kind of occurred to me this year that that like am I just going to be have like have to be hustling nonstop until I retire or is there a level we talk about leveling up a lot that you can get to where you're like, Hey, mm-hmm. I'm going to save up so much money. And if you're DGA or WJ and I have a pension, like I can retire at some point, like, is there a place where you can get to where you're not just so worried about where your next paycheck is going to sure. come from? And we know some directors like Brenna, you know, who directed, I don't know, like 18 episodes of like Chicago fire last mm-hmm. year, you know, and is probably getting residuals. And there's still a few people we are talking about Claire Scanlon, who's, kind of got this like brand really well known in the comedy world and is probably getting more offers to direct TV than she has time for hopefully getting some residuals on those things. But the average director, we know even directors, we know that have like one Sundance that have had Super Bowl commercials that. I, I, well, I, I think it's interesting that you bring up Brenna because she, for listeners who don't remember or who didn't listen to her episode, she kind of lives in that sort of like procedural universe. Like she's doing Chicago shows basically, or like, uh, like Lone Star, yeah, Chicago Fire, yeah. 911, all, like all of that sort of stuff. Um, which is pertinent because those are the only shows that have major episode orders because they appeal to the relic demographic. Yeah. Yeah. Of- yeah. Yesteryear, what we all fantasize about when we were on a 22 episode show and we get yeah. to shoot for 10 months. Because and not- there's no Seinfeld, because there's no Glee, like all of those other other shows that appealed to different demos. Now the, 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 those audiences have migrated to streaming and the episode orders are different. So like the reason that Brenna can direct so many episodes of the television is because they're still making that number. But yeah, the whole economics of that TV and everything have changed so much. And, you know, we've had so many directors on here that have so many, have had so much acclaim. Like we talked about, we had Roxanne Benjamin on who produced the VHS movie Mm -hmm. series, like hit, you know, horror anthology after horror anthology. And it wasn't enough to support her. She ended up getting into TV, which is, you know, where she makes her money now. But I don't know, I guess as creative people and especially freelancers, which is we're just go from project to project. Like, are you ever allowed to take a break? Mm -hmm. Uh, And also now that there's these really short orders, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that 
once you get into the business, you spend sometimes a majority of your time trying to get work and you do not get paid for pitching. You do not get rate, get paid for writing ideas down, for putting your reel together, for going on meetings and talking to people and all that stuff. So for all the time you you spend not getting paid doing those things, you need to make even more money when you do get work because <laughs> you might be making $10,000 a day, but you only get three days of work a year. You can't yeah. afford to live anywhere, yeah. let alone yeah. have a family and kids. The other thing that kind of really made me think a lot about this was this TikTok video I saw of this actress. There's this actress named Adelaide Kane, and she's on Netflix's Rain. And I think... I could be wrong, but I think there's like a lot of episodes of Rain. There's 78 episodes of that show. And I believe she'd posted something about something being expensive. I'm not exactly sure what sparked this, but uh, apparently she got a comment that said, hey, I read you you make $15,000 per episode of Rain and there's 78 episodes. So you're making millions of dollars. Like, how are you complaining about things being expensive? And she said, she's 32 years old now. She said, from the time she was 16 till now, 16 years, she's made $5 million in her acting career. And mm-hmm. she's, by the way, like top 0.1% of actors. She's, you know, sure. a regular yeah, lead yeah. on a 78 episodes of a she Netflix show. She would be one of, if not the most successful person either of us know. Yeah. Not she's, literally true, but like it might as well be. Yeah. Right? She was in The yeah. Purge and Neighbors. She's been on um, 11 episodes of Dragons, 13 episodes of Once Upon a Time. Like yeah. she is a working 10 episodes of SEAL Team, a working, working actor, you know, 12 episodes of Teen Wolf for her whole adult life. Since she was 16, she's been working. She made five million dollars, according to her um, total from acting, which sounds like a lot of money. Right. Anyone Close. would be like, right. Yeah. Five million dollars uh, in 16 years is yeah. not bad. Right. You're a millionaire. And if you invest right and do all that stuff. So 10% goes to her agent, 10% goes to her manager, 5% goes to her lawyer, 25%, right? 5% goes to her business manager, 30%. She just lost. She's British working in America, so she has to pay kind of the highest tax rate, 30%. 60% of that $5 million is now gone, right? Before she even gets a cent mm-hmm. to, Before she to spends spend. Before she spends a cent, yeah. Yeah. Um, now she's like kind of a, a famous in some spheres, right? There's a certain like level of life. She, she has to go to like premiere parties, right? She has mm-hmm. to get dressed. It's $1,500 for There's a, a level a stylist. of maintenance. There's a level of yeah. work in order to continue to earn the sort of money that she's earning. Yeah. To get people to know about you and to cast you in other shows, you have a publicist, right? That's like a couple thousand dollars a month. Social media person to, you know, help you promote your things because you're so busy on set, you know, shooting 78 episodes of Rain. You don't Mm -hmm. have time to run your own thing, but you know that that's an important way to get, keep you in people's minds, right? That's like two, three thousand dollars a month. She said she a lot of times like shooting in two different cities at the same time. She had some rent apartments in both of those places. Right. So she said she ended up netting like about 178,000 on average per year, which is a good, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. um, amount of money. Uh, but after, you know, but every month she has like, you know, $10,000 worth of acting expenses, you know, between the publicists and the social media managers and stylists and makeup artists and all these events she has to go to and things. And, uh, and obviously, you know, which is all very cool. And she, yeah. I'm sure she loves and wouldn't turn down, but are business expenses in the same way that if you ran a t-shirt company, you still have to buy a bunch of cool black t-shirts. Yeah. And you have to go on. to the, to the t-shirt conventions and network mm-hmm. with people and meet designers mm-hmm. that might make cool things and, and take weekends off. Like, you know, mm-hmm. like it's not in America and especially in the entertainment industry, we're in this culture where it's like. Oh, it's 8 p.m. and you're telling me you can't work anymore? Like, okay, that's, sure. you're clearly not serious about your job. And like, actually, you can be serious about your job. And I have a lot of coworkers nights and weekends who, off. who are two hours ahead and it doesn't, I don't even notice. Like, I'm just working with them from eight in the morning. Right. And like, it's yeah. not a big deal in the slightest bit. I'm a morning person, so it's a little bit different. But like, like you just become accustomed to it yeah i mean i got texts from east coast people during our recording of this podcast which we started recording at 9 p.m uh yeah and pacific time yeah we're in work i don't i hate to break it to you but we are working right now yeah yeah sure we're sure but it's fun work 
it's fun work in the same way that going to a a red carpet is is frankly probably less fun than people think but like yeah it's it's, not that it's not fun or it's fun but you have no choice you have to go if you're in a bad mood if you're Relative yeah. died that morning. You still have to yeah, go yeah. and pretend to be happy. And all the cameras are pointing at you and people are pressuring you to do things and you don't yeah. know what their motivation is. And it yeah, can be it, it, a it's lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. It, there's a vulnerability to it. But so I think you look at someone like Adelaide Kane, who after all these business expenses, expenses and everything is like clearing like $50,000 a year or something. <laughs> that is not a super wealthy oh. person in America. Yeah. Uh, especially if you're living in LA or New York or a super expensive city. And what if she had kids and what if she had a husband? Mm-hmm. Clearly she's like at work all the time. Her husband would have to be taking care of the kids or they'd have to get childcare or nanny or whatever. And what if she wanted to buy a house? You know, you can't like put a down payment, $50,000 mm-hmm. on a house in LA. It, so when you look at like the most successful people in an industry and you see that they can barely afford and and again i'm sure we have listeners that are like 50 grand like after paying for everything that's like amazing and and it is it's it's great but it's it's very different than literally like some tech you know an engineer that works does some job that is like there's thousands of people at google do and they're making you know like half a million dollars a year 250 350 thousand dollars a year and google's paying for all their stuff and they don't have an agent or manager uh you know a lawyer that they have to pay uh, like there's so many other careers where being in the top 50%, you know, probably most lawyers in America, I, I, almost every doctor is making more money than like our, our most famous people. Um, and it's, and so you and I, which, you know, I think we talk about this a lot are kind of like middle-class directors, you know, we're not really famous in any way. We work on things that, uh, that people might recognize and we work with you know, quote unquote, famous people and celebrities and influencers and, and people that have maybe a few million people like paying attention to them. But for us, it's like every job is we finish, we get paid, try to Mm -hmm. save some of that money, put a lot away for tax time, and then try to find the next job. And sometimes we're spending weeks pitching, writing, you know, Mm -hmm. doing all this stuff and we don't get paid for any of it. And we have to justify paying for the nanny or paying for all these other people Mm -hmm. to give us the space to do the stuff that we don't get paid for. And can you imagine being like 60 years old and just like hustling, writing a treatment, spending an entire weekend uh, up till 2 a.m. getting this presentation out to pitch against a 25 year old that has none of the other obligations in their life and then you lose it? You know, like how, how long can you, can you do mm-hmm. this for? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. And, and it, I think it counts for writing for it, you know, and honestly the strike had, didn't really open up my eyes cause I didn't realize how similar the writer, I kind of think of writers in before the strike as like either you've made it, you know, you're on a TV show or you sold a movie to a studio and you're in the WGA or you're writing on spec and you're like, I work as a bartender, you know, or do some, yeah. have yeah. a side gig. You work in an office during the day. Yeah. The, the realization that you could be, you could write on a know, top TV on, show, on a yeah. top TV show and then still need to go bartend afterwards. Yeah. In it's, between gigs. It's crazy. It's yeah. really crazy. So anyhow, it, I don't really have an answer. I mean, I think we've talked a lot about on the podcast, especially with the pandemic and stuff that yeah. maybe you could be a writer and live in Nashville or you can live in Asheville or you can live in Ohio at places where it's a little bit cheaper to live. I, I think it's honestly in, in this, at this point in, in the way that the world works, I think it's easier to be a director living in those places than it is to be a writer because like writers have to pitch in person. So much more of it is networking oriented. It's a showrunner who likes you enough to bring you along you're, you know, assisting and like working your way up, you're in rooms. Like even if the rooms are remote rooms now, I think that like the act of getting the work, I think you really need to be in Los Angeles. Whereas either you're established and you're, uh, as a director, either you're established and you have a decent enough reel that you're starting to book things remotely and they kind of don't know where you are, you know, like you and I have both pitched from all over the world. Um, mm-hmm. and you, people know we're LA based, but it, it doesn't really matter, you know, 
or you're trying to get a foothold and, you know, it sometimes it's an advantage to be in a smaller market that's still got plenty of work to be done. So, uh, yeah, I think, look, I think it's a case by case basis for, for whether it's easier or harder for writers or directors who live out of town, but it's hard for everyone, I guess is really the, the takeaway. I love LA for the record. And I love being here and tomorrow we're going to a party that you might or might not go to depending on your table read where we will be networking with like a ton of people that do the same thing we do. And it's helpful. And I've been going to my favorite Starbucks again and running into like the Pierce brothers and all sorts of people that I know and networking. And so I I do think there's like a resurgence of the value of being in LA, but I would be so sad if I was just like a single person or, you know, part of a couple moving to LA and trying to find an apartment to rent right now and realizing that to get a one bedroom apartment is like $3,500 in like a sketchy part of town. Yeah. Yeah. Brutal. Brutal. Yeah, well, so so the other thing that I think the writer's strike has brought to people's attention is that writers, like the, one of the things they're striking about is is the nature of mini rooms, right? And so for people who uh, aren't paying super close attention, a mini room, it's not just that they're hiring fewer writers to write scripts. That's like neither here nor there. Like they can't mandate how many people you hire or not hire, but... It means that they're firing those people, letting them go before production commences, which means that they're not around to do all of the other parts of the job that writers do that are typically kind of more lumped into producing. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the studios are saving money on that and getting by in other ways. Um, But that means a couple things, one of which is that we're having we're going to have a shortage of showrunners sooner than sooner than later. But also it means that they're just not getting a lot of skills like uh you know set skills basically like like understanding what it takes to actually make a show that directors do get and so the thing that we are lucky about is that like in the same way that if push came to shove and i needed to edit or do vfx or all sorts of other kind of more craft oriented jobs we kind of have those skills because of the way that we came up and that's what people are striking about is like writers don't get that training and therefore don't have the skills that it takes to graduate beyond just literally writing on the page. And so sometimes I think I cringe when people complain about uh, whether or not you can make a living as a director because the way that they define being a director is so narrow that if it's literally not just the person who's calling action and casting and doing the job of telling people where to put the camera and stuff, like whatever their, their earliest version of understanding what a director is and what they do, if it's not that, then it doesn't count. Whereas like so much of the job is producing and writing and editing and all sorts of other things that gives us an advantage in that we can just, you know, make ends meet in other ways. And so it can be frustrating if you're like, ah, God, I'm doing these things that aren't directing, but I feel like we're always doing that. Whether I'm in house somewhere or not, like depending on how much producing I'm doing, like a freelance gig where I am just hired as a director, I'm still writing, I'm still producing, I'm still doing all of that stuff, you know? whether it's my title or not. Yeah. And so, and I think that's true for a lot of gigs. And I think sometimes people just have a hard time coming to terms with that. Do you think like when you look at your own future, do you think that you will do some sort of filmmaking forever, whether it's on the development side or on the production yeah. side? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think the thing that I um, will miss, I think the older we get and the more we understand what it takes to make something, the less it makes sense for us to literally be the person on set, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, with plenty of exceptions. But like, you know, you just become so skilled that your your understanding of everything becomes more valuable offset than it is on 
And that's a thing that I'm kind of dealing with a little bit right now, you know, that sense of wanderlust, I think is, is coming back to me, you know, like I think in busier years when it was like, I was out of town once a month, I'm happy to not be doing that anymore. But every once in a while, I'm like, oh, dang, I could be traveling the world right now. And I'm not. Yeah. I oddly am not very interested in traveling for work. And it's still more on the table for you than it is for me. Like I'm still pitching things and, you know, but like literally you were showing me locations in Latvia before we started this shoot. And like, it's not that I want to go to Latvia. But it would be nice if once a quarter I traveled to Latvia and brought, but also I used to like bring my wife with me and like the idea of bringing my wife and my kid is just less smart. That's for sure. And at a certain point, like your kids are older, like your daughter doesn't want to like miss school or like not see her friends to go it's to literally- Latvia bad for her yeah yeah we're i have a shoot in miami at the end of the month and we're trying to figure out it's over right after memorial day can we bring the whole family there and would it be fun and we have some cousins there but it's just such a pain and it's so expensive to fly three additional people round trip and figure out a rental car and hotels yeah. and yeah and, and Latvia, also, like you don't want to be like at a client dinner texting your wife like sorry i missed mm-hmm. the Fun time that you had planned or bed, bedtime or whatever. <laughs> yeah. It's like what well, like now it just means that your your partner is watching your kids solo without the amenities of your home. Yeah. I mean, I do think filmmaking is a young person's sport ultimately. <laughs> but then I think about Ridley Scott, who's yeah, who knows, eighty seven or however old he is, making a crazy show for Apple. All these, all these old people. He's 85 years old. Steven Spielberg, how old? He's like 76 years old, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think also, though, um, both of those examples are really great because, yes, they are two of the greatest directors who have ever done it. And Ridley Scott continues to work not only because he's great, but because his movies come in under budget consistently. Why is that? Because he's also a great producer. Yeah, and both of them have produced a lot of stuff they haven't yeah. directed as well. Yeah, of course, of course. But so the, to my point of like, you know, if you are the person who's day in, day out, you know, putting in those 12-hour days and, and really kind of pulling the whole crew through it, you know, I, I think that I'll probably be that person for the rest of my life. But also, that's not the only value that you add to a project or to a studio or to a company, you know, which again is what the writers are striking about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess the last topic that I was going to talk about this is the writer strike us talking about how difficult it is to keep hustling Mm -hmm. for your entire life to get jobs while trying to also have some semblance of a normal life is the question is, and Ulrich from Making Movies is Hard, and I've talked about this a lot, is is does the world owe us <laughs> this opportunity mm-hmm, to be mm-hmm. professional filmmakers or is it like being like a, a day drinker? No one's going to pay you to be a professional day drinker, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, like, because it's fun. And the reason we want to be filmmakers is because it's fun. Uh, yeah. Um, do, are we owed the opportunity to make this a career? I have a hard line attitude about this. Um, and the answer is absolutely not 100% not. I think that my main frustration with a certain type of independent filmmaker in particular is that they're mad that audiences don't show up for their movie because they made a movie and didn't give the audience enough of a reason to want to watch the film and didn't tell them in enough creative and thoughtful ways or raise enough money to tell them in the ways that they needed to be told, which is look, that's tough love. And like every point that I'm making and I'm criticizing, I have done for sure. Right. Yeah. Without question. You've done that to me all the time. You're like, watch this. And I'm like, no, thanks. Yeah. Um, and then you get mad at me. I should have been more creative about the way that I told you to do it. And I didn't pay for Facebook ads to advertise to or you specifically. And I also didn't make a thing that you would like, which is the really important thing. But I think even like, and this is 
I'm going to say something controversial, but you know, we've had uh, directors on the podcast who got their first feature made because their parents were rich, you mm -hmm. know, yeah, and sure. gave them the money. You know, there's a little bit of us that's like, you know, well, of course you got to make your, you know, hundred thousand dollar thesis film in film school because your uncle gave sure. you the money. Um, yeah. But, and almost like in that, that that's negative. And, you know, we think that there's obviously, especially over the last few years, this idea that everyone should have an equal opportunity to get into the filmmaking business. Everyone should be able to pitch their thing and write their story and, and do that and make their short and have the same, like that it's important, like that as if it's like college or something that mm -hmm. everyone is owed an equal opportunity to get into this business. But, you know, when you realize that, you have to spend years just pitching and working for doing like hustling nonstop and, and having an apartment to rent and food to eat without getting paid. You realize really it's, you either have to be super young and like couch surf and you do that, or you have to be rich. You know? I, yeah, no, I, 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 sure. Like there are sacrifices that people have to make, but I, I guess I, I think we're maybe confusing my point. My point is like, I think that everyone deserves the chance to take the test, to take the final in college, but not everyone deserves an A. You have to earn the A that the A is the audience. The A is the career. The A is and and I look, I think that the the counterpoint to that is that some people get to take that test more times. The privilege is is the chance to retake the test and to fail and get better yeah. and iterate. That is hard to be born into the industry. Your parents are sure, well, you know. I'll tell a story that I haven't told in a, probably a couple of years. I went to USC, the University of Spoiled Children, is what it's called. Sometimes it's pretty competitive to get into the film school, but I think. Look, if your parents are rich enough, you probably get accepted a little bit easier than if your parents weren't super rich. There are, you know, all of right. the, all, every school has like a, they're tracking. Yeah. Who, and it's worth mentioning. Rich. It's a private school it's, and, and yeah. it's a business. Yeah. I knew two different guys, same, same graduating class. Um, one who, uh, you know, was fine. You know, I didn't really know super well. And then there was another dude who I knew pretty well who, uh, was super duper funny like really smart really gifted and they were both fucking rich like like 0.01 percent rich like i could name their parents and you would be like oh yeah they're very rich like, oh, that guy's name is on every urinal i've seen mm -hmm. yeah exactly one of them never made a goddamn thing and he spent i don't know eight years in and out of school and was the funniest one you know they like the funniest mm -hmm. person i knew in film school maybe um, and the other guy was D David Ellison. The founder of Sky Oracle. Dance. Sky Dance. So every Mission Impossible movie you've seen in the last two decades, uh, every J.J. Abrams movie you've seen in the last two decades. Wait, he went to school with you? Saved the age? blockbuster. Yeah. David, his sister's Megan, who uh, founded Annapurna. So mm -hmm. like one did art films and the other did blockbusters. And like, there you go. But they were both funded by a billionaire. <laughs> but so was the other guy, right? So just because you have a billion dollars doesn't mean that you make the next Mission Impossible is what is my point. Right. Yeah. No, of course, there, there needs to be some talent or Could you know, I taste. have funded the next Mission Impossible? No. But it's like ev everyone gets dealt a different hand and some people know how to play that hand and some people don't. Right. But I guess the, those of us that aren't dealt hands are sure. I guess that's a question is like, is that injustice in any way? Or is it just, I mean, yes, you yes, know, only rich people is. play polo. You know? Yeah, no, no, no. Of course it is. Like, are we saying privilege is bad? Yes. 100% it is. Does that mean that you necessarily are guaranteed success or not? No. I, my point is, is that like play the hand you're dealt, do the best that you can with it. And if you make a bad movie, don't be mad when people don't come to see it. And bad can mean a lot of different things. That doesn't mean it does. it's not personal or that you don't love it. But part of our job, bringing it full circle, it's not just to write a good story or to shoot something beautiful or to edit something really tight. You have to give 
you have to understand that it's a business as well. And there, there are reasons and motivating factors for why people see movies and why they don't. Yeah. I guess I feel like I'm talking about something slightly different, which is sure. You, you know, you need to make good stuff to, to mm-hmm. be uh, awarded in this business. But if you get, get most of your joy mm-hmm. from being on set and filming things and writing and working mm-hmm. with actors and whatever, figuring out locations and all those things. And that's why you are going into filmmaking and you expect that that's like most of what you'll do once you get into it for mm-hmm. the rest of your career until you retire in your sixties or seventies or however old you are, then there's a good chance you'll be disappointed. <laughs> uh, if what you enjoy is networking and hustling and pitching and trying mm-hmm. to find like if you're and if you love sales, if you love convincing people to give you money or take a chance on you or go with your idea, then you'll probably be pretty happy <laughs> in, in this yeah. business. Yeah. And so I think just just a lot to think about, especially for like some of our listeners that are newer and trying to figure out what the next move is. And I, I don't mean to be negative at all. I just mean that it's, you know, it's a... It's an interesting business and even our most successful friends that have directed things you've watched are at times wondering what the next job is and if there will be another job. The business that we entered, that we decided we wanted to join is 100% different. Yeah. And so it's hard to predict or make plans or aim for a goal that's totally different, you know? Right. Yeah, and it very well might change again. Yeah. Uh, I do think that during the strike, during these times, like economic recession, that maybe it's a time when people might leave the business or give up on the business, and it, the ones of us that persevere and stay survivors. here yeah, yeah. maybe um, are rewarded in that we stuck around. When, when things get good again, we'll be here. But that said, I think we're both... You know, having <laughs> having a pretty good May so far, you know. Yeah. Um. So I don't mean to be negative. I think there is like a lot of great projects to work on and a lot of talented people making really cool things. Um. It's just, uh, you know, there there's ebbs and flows in this yeah. business, and it's just if you have to be, you have to enjoy the ride in order yeah. to survive. It, I think the re- the reason that I went and tried to find something more stable is partially because I noticed that my other creative work suffers when I can't think of anything besides how I'm going to keep the lights on. You mm-hmm. know, I had a lot of free time the first half of this year and I just couldn't, I couldn't focus. I couldn't do it because I was just so worked up about just trying to support a family. And so, you know, that's the thing you have to learn about yourself. Sometimes I think you can, like if with the amount of money that I had in my bank account, if it was four years ago, I'd be like, it's fine. I'd be like, Orin, let's go get a coffee. It's no big deal. Mm -hmm. But, you know, parenthood and a mortgage. and, And again, seeing the writer strike coming, like knowing that like, it's it was slow then it was going to get even slower just freaked me out so bad and now that i've got something a little bit more mellow you know um i'm refocused which is nice yeah well we'd love to hear from you what you all think how you're all uh feeling if you're optimistic if you're pessimistic if you taking things day by day our buddy lauren sick emailed us uh she emailed us she dm'd us on instagram about how our last episode about management woes and all that stuff. I got a couple um, texts about that one as well. Stretch a cord. Nice. Yeah, yeah. So we love to hear when you are thinking about the same things because uh, that's part of what this podcast is about. It's about, you know, the lives of the middle-class directors and how we make a living as filmmakers. Yeah. Here's to being upper middle-class directors soon. Yeah. But you know, if you're like lower middle-class in LA, you're upper middle-class pretty much everywhere else. Yeah, I mean, look, pretty cool. If it was the '90s, we'd be rich. <laughs> yeah, so because rich. we would invest in Apple. Anyhow, so much for time machines. Mm-hmm. You got anything you want to endorse? 
We should start getting paid for the endorsements, Howard. Oh, yeah. Unpaid endorsements. I'm going to re-endorse something, Oren. You're going to roll your eyes. But uh, there's, an, mm-hmm. I think, a new feature in one of our favorite programs that you turned me on to, Polycam. Oh, yeah. Go on. So po- Polycam for... Uh, if you haven't checked it out, is a, a LiDAR scanning app that basically builds a 3D model of any room that you're in. Uh, you use it with your phone. It's incredible. It gives you all sorts of different 3D file formats. Um, but have you used the room function? Uh, I don't know. What does it do? So the room function strips all of that stuff away and just gives you a, a more concise, scaled down, 3d model of any room that you're in so whereas before if you were using the lidar version you would get like you know if there's a chair in the middle of the room you'd have to really do a good job of scanning the chair and this and that this gives you essentially a white model but in 3d like you know like like a like a foam core model so it still gives you all of the dimensions and any major um pieces of furniture beds chairs dressers, refrigerators, all of that stuff. It still does that, but just in a really super low poly way, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found it to be, frankly, much more useful for any sort of like home improvement stuff or even even like scouts, honestly. Like most of the time, I don't need the stucco texture of the wall that I'm scanning. I just want to know that there's a wall there. And so I think it's new. I think it's like an update, but uh, the room function on Polycam, especially if you're not like a 3D artist, has been really awesome for me. Awesome. I will check it out for sure. Uh, Oren, what you got? I have a a weird one, not film related. As many people know, there's crazy inflation and the Fed is trying to tamp it down. And the way they do that is they raise interest rates, right? What does that mean? It means it costs more money to borrow money. However, if you have your money in like Bank of America or Wells Fargo or Chase or any of these standard big banks, they give you nothing to put your cash in, in them. 0.01% yeah. interest, yeah, interest or, or 0%. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I knew, you know, back in the day, you and I had looked at some of these online banks for the podcast, like SoFi and Ally Bank and these online only banks. And I knew and I'd heard they give high interest rates. And now as interest rates were going up, I was like, oh, maybe I should open up a new account. And I had, I've had for a while a Robinhood account, you know, it's like mm-hmm. the stock trading. Mm-hmm. Um, you app. wanted your, your stonks. My stonks. Yeah. However, I don't know if you know this, but as the interest rates have been going up, if you uh, are a Robinhood gold member, which the only thing it requires is it's a $5 a month fee to be, to have a Robinhood gold account. Any cash you put in that account today, as of today, you make 4.65% interest on it. Okay. Yeah. Literally just cash. You have to resist the urge to buy stocks or Bitcoin or anything with it. But if you transfer cash and it can, you can just connect it straight to your bank account. So it's Mm -hmm. like an electronic transfer. Uh, As long as you're paying this $5 a month Robinhood gold fee, you make 4.65%. And by the way, when I first started doing it, I was only making 4.4%, but the Fed just raised the interest rates a quarter of a percent a couple of weeks ago. And they, so Robinhood raised it. So every time they raise the interest rate, Robinhood raises their interest rate that they're giving you on your cash. And it's like, literally, if you put, you know, $10,000 in it, you'd make $465 at the end of the year. Uh, so it's, and it's calculated every day. So you could put you know, $100,000 in your account, get Mm -hmm. however much that day and then take it back out and you would get to keep that interest. And obviously it's interest. So you have to pay taxes on it on and it it count counted as interest income. But, uh, but yeah, so I basically have moved all my cash from Mm -hmm. every account Mm -hmm. into Robinhood for now, just because, uh, it's, it's a really high interest rate for literally like just having your money in a bank. And, you know, when your money is in a bank, it's usually insured by the FDIC for up to $250,000. Uh, if your money is in a brokerage like Robinhood, they usually work with a bunch of banks. So you're actually insured by like six different banks. And so you're insured up to one and a half million dollars on any money that you put in Robinhood. So, you know, obviously the banking system has been in a bit of disarray mm-hmm. and a few mm-hmm. big banks, First National and Silicon Valley Bank have kind of gone out of business. Um, and a big reason I've been coming to realize that people are pulling their money out of banks 
is because they don't get any interest. So that you're literally, mm-hmm. and with inflation being high, you're literally like losing money by just putting your money in the bank because your money is becoming less valuable because of inflation. So if you want to try to stop that loss, uh, Robinhood is my endorsement of a place to just put your money in, but you got to make sure you're Robinhood gold. Cause if you're not, you get like 1% or something. Um, that's anyhow, pretty good. That's pretty good. I'm I not a financial s- advisor. Yeah. Uh, this yeah, isn't yeah. financial advice, but yeah, I guess it is. I don't know. Uh, yeah. But it's not, you know, it's, it's yeah. a risk-free thing. I'm not telling you to invest in any. Orin <laughs> definitely told me to put anything. a lot of my money into crypto at a funny time. I don't think I ever told you to put money in. I, I told you I was doing it, <laughs> uh, but uh, I don't. I think, you told, I think you did tell me to do it. I didn't, <laughs> but I don't or, think... or no, not but no, not buy crypto. You told me like to. Oh yes, yes, to, yeah, to use. Yes, I was getting like yeah, with, yeah, great with, in the crypto great. account like thirteen percent interest. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Um, did and it totally worked? Back? But you did right? Yeah. Yeah, but it it that that interest rate like crumbled like when yeah. when yeah. the whole crypto world crumbled, they basically were like, yeah, we're not giving you this because obviously it's not sustainable. Who can give you like thirteen percent of your money back? But um, but yeah, check out Rob. I mean, do your own research. Uh, obviously, <laughs> that's right. Uh, but it's a it's an insanely high interest rate for such like uh, simple. What yeah. I believe is seems very low risk legit yeah anyhow that's it if you want to find out more if you want to email us we'd love to hear from you we are just shooting it pod at gmail.com matt and i get your emails directly if you don't get a response it's matt if you do get a response it's me yeah it's pretty true and we love to hear from you you can also find us on twitter instagram everywhere at just shooting pod you can find me on instagram i'm at o kaplan and i'm at mr matt and low this episode was edited by Noah Bayshore, produced by Tyler Small, and you're listening to music provided by the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.